Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. And let's start by saying well done to the boys in green. I don't know if you watched the match or if you were at the match last night. It looked like there was an absolutely incredible atmosphere, both before the match, during the match and uh, after the match. And the Republic of Ireland team taking on Portugal in front of its first full house uh, last night and you know something I think the boys in green did us proud it mightn't have been we would have preferred a win but we'll we'll take a draw and certainly I think it'd be at, at before the match if uh, Stephen Kenny had been offered a draw I think he would have gladly accepted it I think Michael and ba- Barry Rose summed it up well when he was texting in early this morning to Ken and he was saying the Republic of Ireland put up a, a very spirited performance against uh, Portugal and they defended like lions and they absolutely did uh, defend like lions and they were very very unlucky to have that late goal uh, disallowed and then what a lot of the papers are picking up on and gorgeous photographs in many of the papers today was just as the whistle blew that young girl Addison Whelan she's been named now in all of the papers she plays with Shelburne under 13s she broke through security she managed to reach her idol Ronaldo and all she wanted was a great big hug which he willingly gave her and then he handed over his took off his shirt straight away uh, and gave it to her and he walked away to a huge cheer from the crowd which was great because it seems every single time during the match that he even touched the ball or came near to touching the ball there was a collection of inglorious boos was how one sports journalist said every time Ronaldo took possession of the the ball so it was really nice then to see the crowd appreciating what he did and for him to realise that the boos were you know not really a personal thing against him it was just the Irish team really not wanting him to play as good as he normally uh, does so it ended up in that gorgeous sweet moment on the end of a night that was um, wasn't too bad for Stephen Kenny's Ireland and by all accounts everybody left the Aviva last night extremely happy so if you were at the match I'm sure that you enjoyed it and I was listening to some Vox Pops that were done this morning on people leaving the match and everybody was saying how well organised it was and how safe people felt because of course with the way the Covid figures are going at the moment there would be a sense of worry about attending a large event like that so well done to everybody involved in the Aviva Stadium for making everybody feel feel 
safe and well and an enjoyable evening had by all. 1850 Can just on just some things coming in to do with post and parcels, particularly to and from the UK. Christine, one of our listeners have been on to us. She was on to us a number of weeks ago because her daughter is somewhere in the UK and there is a, a wedding coming up and the plan is and was that Christine's daughter would send over the wedding invitations to Christine and then Christine would post them out from uh, here. They're posted from uh, London and Christine was on to us because the wedding invitations hadn't arrived and I remember at the time we were saying, you know, hang on in there. There are delays. We know there are a number of delays because of Brexit and there's lots of checks now, custom checks going on and there's the knock-on is there is a lengthy delay with some parcels, not with all parcels, but certainly with some parcels and any parcels coming out of the UK. Christine, I know, was in a bit of a panic at the time, so I think, and so was the daughter, as you could imagine, coming up to and organising a wedding. So as far as I can remember, the daughter decided she was going to send on, get more invitations done and send them on to her mum. Well, Christine has been on to us to say that the first slot has finally arrived. It took 43 days from when her daughter posted it in the UK to when they arrived in Cork to uh, Christine. So just be aware of that. And there was a number of experts out yesterday, particularly from online retailers and the Post Office Network saying, if you are ordering, are you expecting parcels from the UK? There will be delays and it's to do with Brexit and it's to do with customs checks. So please be mindful of that. All the more reason if you're purchasing items to purchase them locally. But I'm very conscious at this time of the year we have loved ones and families living in the UK and will want to be sending the parcels over and the people in the UK will want to be sending the parcels home as well. If you really want something to get there in time for Christmas I'd be getting it organised fairly quickly for fear that your parcel could get could get caught up in all of those uh, delays. And then somebody else by text said, Patricia, would you please warn your listeners posting to the UK of random checks on parcels with a combined value and postage of more than €32. They'll be charged tax and handling charge. My grandson had to pay an extra 45 and I'm assuming that's pounds into the UK as the postage was 23 euro. I had put the value of the parcel down at 20 euro, but they're looking at the value of the postage. And we all know the postage has gone up. Wow, that made, that would take the sting out of a present, wouldn't it? You're sending a present to somebody and the postman knocks on the door and says, I want 45 pounds off you in order for you to get the present. So be mindful of that as well. I think we're going to be going back to the day if you have loved ones living, we'll be sending, you, I would never ad- advocate sending cash in the post unless you're registering it. Jempathy, I remember I did, my grandmother was in England and every year for my birthday, a postal order <laughs> used to arrive. And those were the days where there was no difference uh, between sterling and the Irish punt because I used to just cash the postal order at a local shop and the excitement of the card arriving knowing that the postal order was going to be inside in it. I wonder are we going back to that day where you'll be sending cash or a cheque or wiring money to a loved one because it's just going to become A, so expensive to send parcels. If anyone has loved ones living in Australia and God knows the Australians, the Irish living in Australia love the parcels, absolutely love the parcels and the bags of potatoes and the packets of of Barry's tea. But if you've sent and you're due to send a parcel this year, be warned, everything has gone up in price. So you've got to be so, so careful of that. And we know with everything going up in price, including the price of postage, we have many families, families here in our own Cork area who are really struggling. And one of those listeners 
made contact with us uh, this week. I'm, am I allowed to say her first name, or is yeah, we are? Is that is that? It's a, it's a different name. We're calling her Jane. Okay, we're calling her Jane just so that I can talk about Jane. Jane has uh, contacted us. She's living in uh, Bandon. And recently she's been helping out another family member. It's her daughter. She's been helping out because her daughter, while the the daughter is in a household where somebody is working, so isn't entitled to any social welfare or anything like that. The family are struggling because there's young children. I think there's a child who's unwell at the moment. So Jane has been doing her bit and she's been helping the family to buy food and, and things like that. And what she's basically been doing is Jane has been living on social welfare. She hands over her entire social welfare to her daughter so that the daughter's household can keep going and that the kids are looked after. But that then leaves Jane with absolutely nothing. And for food in the past she's gone to the local societies of Vincent Paul and Bandon who are absolutely amazing and they have given her vouchers and they've really helped her out on the weeks where she's had absolutely nothing when she, where she's had to give all of her social welfare payment over uh, to her daughter. So she got on to us this week. Now she has a payment coming in on Monday. So she basically just needs some food to keep her going across the weekend. She's at pains to point out that she doesn't want cash. She doesn't want anybody saying, because I know the minute I would mention something like this, you'd have a kind-hearted person saying, I'll willingly hand over some money uh, to that person. She doesn't want that. What she ideally wants is for somebody to do a little bit of a shop for her. Things, the basics, like milk and bread and eggs and maybe a bit of cheese, maybe a couple of rashers, a few sausages, something just to keep her going across the weekend. And if you could drop them to Jane's door and we obviously have all of Jane's details which we would pass on to the person who'd be willing to do a little bit of a shop and just leave it at her front door because she is struggling herself physically and is not able to walk and she lives a little bit on the outskirts of Bandon so even for her to do a shop it means getting a taxi in and a taxi out Uh, so she uh, wouldn't be able to go anywhere to collect the food items. So We're looking for a kind-hearted person in the Bandon area who today might be going out to do some shopping yourself and would you be willing to pick up just a bag of basics? As Jane says, just to keep her going across the weekend because on Monday she's got, obviously her social welfare payment is arriving on Monday and she'll be able to buy the few bits. But she really is down and out. She doesn't want to go back to St Vincent de Paul. She said they have been extremely generous to her and she doesn't want to go back there again particularly when it's only a small amount she needs. That's why she doesn't need a full voucher from St Vincent de Paul. It's just a bag of the basics and you know saying we were, I was discussing it in the office with John Paul and I said I think this is the first I don't think I've ever had a case like this before where we have somebody listening to the programme who literally has no food in the cupboard and just wants to survive across the weekend. It's such a sad, sad case if I was in Bandon myself, Jane, I'd get the bits and drop them to your door, but unfortunately I'm not. So anybody in the Bandon area, if you could give John Paul a call so that we can give you the address of where Jane is and her postcode, uh, etc. And if you would just go off and get the items, it would be a really kind hearted thing. It would be a good deed, not just for the week, but a good deed for the year. So hopefully we'll have somebody picking up on that. 1850-333-103. Kevin Quaid has been on to us, the wonderful Kevin Quaid, who joined us on the programme earlier in the week with his new book, I Am Kevin, Not Louis, where he talks about his own journey of living with Louis body dementia. He is just an incredible man and 
and so inspiring and I was heartened by so many people following our interview with Kevin just saying what a great great man he is and wishing him and his gorgeous wife Helena all the very best well he's been on to say that he's going to be in Philip's bookshop in Mallow tomorrow between two and four where he will be signing copies of his book if anybody wants to go along and purchase a copy of Kevin's new book or if you would like to meet him in person that's tomorrow Philip's bookshop between two and four and he's in a bookshop which is a fantastic name called Read and Write in Yall he's going to be there next Tuesday and that's between two and four next Tuesday afternoon the best of luck to uh, Kevin and we've been asked to wish the best of luck to all of Cork Towns who are competing in the Tidy Towns today. Oh, details of the winners later this afternoon. Oh my God, that's always a nervous, nervous time for any of the committee who work so hard keeping our towns and villages clean. I mean, to me, they are the unsung heroes. Whenever I'm out, when when I'm driving on a Saturday, I do my my big shop on the Saturday and I'm always passing on Saturday morning people in the Mallow area with their yellow vests on them and their bags and they're picking up other people's uh, rubbish and my heart bursts with pride looking at them. They are all winners in their own right but it would be great if we saw some of our Cork towns doing well in the Tidy Towns competitions. So good luck to all of those committees. And I mentioned that young girl who broke through security and managed to run onto the pitch to reach Ronaldo and got the big hug from Ronaldo uh, last night in the Aviva and then uh, he took off his shirt and he gave it to her. A young girl by the name of Alison Addison Whelan. She's a young Dublin girl. She plays with Shelburne under 13. Well, Jim Jim and Nobby at our Dublin station FM 104 actually managed to catch up with Addison um, who ran on to the pitch at the Aviva last night. And take a listen. You'll be just really take a listen to this. OK, so I jumped the fence and I ran over to Ronaldo and I, and I seen two other stewards coming, coming at me from the other side. Right. So I went away a little bit. And then I, I tried to swerve around them, but they caught me. And then I was just screaming Ronaldo's name. So do you think because you were shouting, he saw you? And then Ronaldo spotted me and he was telling them to leave me. Because they were going to drag you away and, and he, gave you a, he gave you a hug and he gave you his jersey. Yeah. So, so a steward kind of had a hold of you until Ronaldo said leave her? Yeah. Wow. So where's the jersey now, Addison? The jersey's beside me. What did you say to him, if anything? I was just like, Ronaldo, Ronaldo, can I have your jersey, please? I'm a huge fan and everything. And there was no problem, he gave it to you straight away? Yeah, he he just took it off straight away and you want to see me dad's face when he when he went to take it off. What? <laughs> my dad's face was just like... <gasps> and did you get into trouble then with the stewards? No, they were actually just like holding me by the arm saying like, where did you come from and everything. <laughs> He's well. He's well. Over there. <laughs> Leave me alone. So you're not going to get into trouble with anybody. Nobody's going to fine you renting like that, are they? Nope. But they did pay me that a fine. Did they? How much? Yeah, they paid him. Three grand. What? Three grand your dad has to pay, does he? Yeah. Is he going to pay it? And I'm back from the Aviva till I pay it. <laughs> you are joking. Free <laughs> Addison. Hashtag free Addison. And is he going to pay it? Yeah. Is it, was it worth it? Yeah, way worth it. And what's, how long does it take Ronaldo to earn three grand, Jim? Will you pay? Half a second. <laughs> uh, we can't pay. No, but maybe if Ronaldo's listening, he'd pay for you. Yeah. <laughs> and did he say anything back to you or did he just smile? Ronaldo, he was... Ronaldo? Yeah. He was just like... Yeah, he was just... 
like he was smiling but he was saying like because I told him that I was a huge fan and he said and he said he said uh, I appreciate that wow and was he all sweaty when he gave you a hug yeah <laughs> were, were you not a bit like oh, Ronaldo yeah. have a shower no <laughs> And come here, when you're not footballing, you're mad into sport as well. Is Kelly Harrington a bit of a hero of yours? Yeah, and I was on the phone to Katie last night. I mean, Katie Taylor, like? Yeah. How does she ring you? What do you mean you're on the... Like, on FaceTime. Because she saw the match? Yeah, she she was on the phone because of the jersey. She loves, <laughs> she loves them as well. She looking for the jersey too? <laughs> we asked first, right? You can't just drop in the Katie buzz you like as if it's some girl from town. Or maybe Katie pay her three grand fine. So what did she say? <laughs> she was like, she told me that she's going to do a boxing session with me. Wow. Incredible. This is unbelievable. You're having some 24 hours. I know. There and your you man's go. letting you have a day off school. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's young Addison Whelan talking to Jim Jim and Nobby at our Dublin uh, station and she sounds like a delightful little girl. Is that a bit extreme that the dad has been fined €3,000? Now I know we can't have everybody running onto the pitch but it was one little girl who just was beyond excited at seeing her hero and even for, I mean, Ronaldo even saying to the stewards, leave her alone, she's fine, she was only there for a couple of seconds and they got her back, she got her hug, she got her jersey and they got her back to her dad. But €3,000 and they won't be allowed back into the Aviva until the 3000 <laughs> God, I wonder will there be a change on that uh, today, we'll, we'll follow that closely. But she looks like an adorable little girl and she certainly will remember her night at the Aviva and the night that Ireland drew with Portugal. 1850 John Paul taking your calls, you can text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Cork today on C103 With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group Want great advice? You know who to talk to CMIG.ie Let's stay on the topic of uh, soccer seeing as we were talking about what happened in the Aviva last night because referees have threatened to withdraw from all soccer nationwide unless appropriate measures are enforced to end abuse and violence towards match officials to discuss what can be done following an escalation in attacks. I'm joined by Harry McGann, who we've spoken with before. Harry was forced to give up refereeing because of the violence and the abuse. Good morning to you, Harry. Morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. Firstly, did you watch the match last night? I was actually lucky enough to be in the Aviva. Were you? Yes, yeah. Was, was the ref right, right to disallow the goal? It was very hard to see and I'm still yet to see a replay but I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt given the, the conversation we're about to have I suppose. Okay, okay. And the and the atmosphere there last night, electric? Oh yeah, it was incredible and, and the young girl at the end of the game um, his name now is slipping my mind. Ad- Addison, Addison Whelan. Yeah, it was fantastic seeing her run onto the pitch and in fairness to Ronaldo he did her very well. He was, uh, he was very good. So no, it was a great atmosphere all around. Yeah, we've just heard from Alison Whedon actually on the programme. Her dad has been fined €3,000. Ah, that's incredible. Really? <laughs> <laughs> that's gas. And, and, and look, this goes back to a wider problem with Irish football. Like, uh, honestly, how somebody could look at that situation and think, yeah, we need to find them is, is incredible. And, w- and wait for this, it gets worse. Addison will not be allowed back into the Aviva until her dad pays the €3,000. Yeah, of course. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, she's 13 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A major security threat to Ronaldo and the rest of the players. Anyway, let's go back to the topic we are discussing today. Does it worry you, Harry, that this type of abuse towards referees seems to be getting worse? Yeah, it does. I I think it's a really serious issue that we don't talk often enough about. Um, I think it comes up in the headlines every couple of months. 
but unfortunately when it does we talk about it and then we move on and there's, there's a lack of action there and that lack of action has seen the situation get progressively worse and worse um, as the months and years have gone by um, it started out with abusive comments it's now threats of violence and it's now people acting on those threats of violence and um, I think that's something that should be worrying a lot of people And when somebody is called out for this type of abuse what are the sanctions or the punishments? So the big problem with the sanctions and punishments is the lack of, lack of consistency. Um, so what happens is each of the individual leagues, so there could be a couple of leagues in each county who look after the football, and what will happen is they're then given the reports from the referees and they're supposed to deal with them accordingly. What's happened in a lot of cases is some leagues are dealing with it more uh, strongly than others. Some are, aren't addressing the problem at all. And the inconsistency means that some individuals, time and time again, are getting away with abusing and threatening violence towards referees, and it's, it's getting away scot-free, basically. Um, and, that, and that's the big issue here, is the inconsistency in the actions being taken, um, and the kind of call now needs to be that the FAI needs to put in place strict measures to make sure that every deal, every league deals with these the same way and deals with them in a strong way. And of course, the people involved with the abuse know that. They know there's going to be no sanctions. Would refs know, say, certain clubs or teams where they know the abuse is going to be worse, for example? Oh, most certainly, yeah. There's there's clubs who are renowned for their fantastic behaviour and there's clubs that are renowned for, I suppose, their 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 abuse and, and their threats. Um, and it's, it's hard to believe, especially considering we're talking about kids' football here, but you walk up, and my time as a referee, you'd walk up to clubs or you'd see clubs for fixtures and you'd think, this is definitely going to be a hard weekend and you're definitely going to have some problems and you're definitely going to have abuse. Um, and in my case, I, I was dealing with the same people over and over again. I'd be sending off managers one week and a couple of months later I'd be sending them off again for the same thing whether it be abusive or threatening um, and it's quite disheartening I think for referees who think that they're trying to do the right thing they write the match report the weekend they feel that it'll be dealt with accordingly and then a couple of weeks later they face the same individual who's given them the same level of abuse And nothing has happened in the meantime and and if you had to even to, to hear you say send off a manager and you, you say there's a report done up after the match so it's not that you weren't reporting it. No, no. And like, look, in some cases, there is instance where these incidents aren't being reported properly or in the right way. But in most of the cases, the referee will go home at the weekend, they'll write their match report and they'll send it into the league. And if there's been incidents where they've been actually violently um, assaulted, then that, that could be passed on to the FAI and the necessary authorities. But other than that, the league deal with them. And unfortunately, what's happened is it's just it, it's not consistent. So you could have one manager's banned for a couple of months. You could have another one who's given a fine. You could have one who received no ban at all and just a warning. And and that's the problem here is that people are getting away with things and you give somebody an inch and they take a mile. And in the end, remind us what made made your decision to just give it all up, pack it all up. Oh. Okay, we've lost um, Harry there. We have we had been having problems earlier trying to connect with him. I'll see if uh, John Paul can get him back on the line again. But it is uh, looking like referees themselves are deciding that something has to be done and something more has to be done than what the FAI have been trying to do to date. Because obviously what they've been trying to do t- to date hasn't been working. And this escalation of abuse and violence is is just uh, crazy okay I'm told Harry Harry you're back with us we got it we got disconnected there I was just asking uh, for you to remind us what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you what made you finally decide to give up refereeing yeah sorry about that 
Um, so what happened in my case was that I had a manager who actually um, tried to strike me with the flag that I'd given them to flag for a ball going out of the play. So um, yeah, I was I went up. There was quite abuse and quite threatening um, from a club who I had problems with before, and the manager tried to strike me. Thankfully, didn't, and I blew up the game. And I just never went back to refereeing again. I just wasn't going to wait for somebody to actually hit me or to, to actually follow through on one of their and was it something that you really enjoyed doing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, I was in the Aviva last night. I'd be in the Aviva very, very regularly. A, a big football fan, um, and it was something that I, I really love. Um, and from the refereeing point of view, when I finished playing football myself as a teenager, I thought it'd be a great way to stay involved in a sport that I loved. But it's unfortunate that a handful of individuals, I suppose, really did force me out of the game, like so many people, really. Um, it's very common. Shocking. And you do it, Harry, for the love of the game. It's not that you're making a huge sum of money out togging off every weekend and going out to a refer match. Yeah, look, I was doing it as I suppose as I was starting college and as a teenager, and um, get about thirty euros a game. Um, everybody's kind of well aware of that. It's usually to cover things like expenses. You spend your entire weekend doing it. And there was often Saturdays where I'd ref four or five kids' games, and I'd be gone from eight o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock in the evening. Um, and that was fine and to be honest I really enjoyed it it was great it's a great way to spend your weekend but it's, it's just when when you have people who are threatening to wait for you in car parks after games or when they're they're threatening and saying stuff to you that you just it, it's just disheartening and I think after a while people get fed up with it I got fed up with it quite quickly some people managed to stick it out for a while but there's a huge decline in referees across the country and in almost all kids sports to be honest the VAA have a similar issue soccer is a similar issue so it's, it's a societal thing not necessarily just something and when you train to be a referee and, and there is a, a training course for it, do they teach you or show you how to handle abuse? Is that covered? No, not really. It's like, you know what to be dealing with in terms of like if there's certain behaviours that, that actually force you to make a decision to abandon the game or to, to send off a manager or an official, you're kind of told what to expect. But I don't think anybody has prepared or rightfully shouldn't be prepared for what is currently happening where as I said it's, it's people saying they're going to wait in car parks after games threats of violence people actually violently assaulting referees I don't think the FAI is prepared for that um, rightfully so but it is now a part of the game so I think we, what we need to be doing is not necessarily preparing referees for it but preparing clubs to understand that if this happens that it'll only happen once and it'll never happen again because you won't be involved in the game for much longer So it's a zero tolerant approach oh. is, what, is what you're saying has to be brought in to be. I've heard too many people talk about you know small actions like silent sidelines and so on and so forth but we have a really big and real problem here. And the only way to address that is to show people that if you're going to behave in a certain way then you're going to be forced out of the game and you won't be led back into it. Um, and like, There's no other part of society where you get away with speaking to somebody the way some manager, the parent, speak to referees. Yeah, that's a good like, point. That's you, a good you really point. wouldn't. Yeah. Um, it would be called out for what it is. Yeah, like you wouldn't speak to anybody. Like really, if you went into work and had somebody speak to you the way some referee take abuse from parents and managers, you'd be very quick out the door. Um, and, and that's what's happening here, really. And I, I don't know what gives people some idea that it's right or it gives them the idea that they can get away with it. But for some reason, they feel like it's a crime that will go unpunished. Um, and that's the problem here. It's, it's turning into a breeding ground and it's a real toxic environment at the moment. Yeah, and it's so unfair because, it, I mean, it's fair to say that refs go out to give their best. They, you know, they, they mightn't, you mightn't get all of this, the decisions correct, but you don't set out to get it wrong. 
No, there's no benefit to getting it wrong. You know, like on a Saturday morning in an under 12 match, when last they're playing second last, there's no reason for you to get a decision wrong. It's not like you have a bet on the game. You know, it's not like you're trying to match fix. It's it's very much just doing your best as you possibly can. And what people sometimes don't realise is when you get a decision wrong or you make a mistake, it's disheartening for the referee for one. But it's it's difficult to compare that to what you're watching in this on a Saturday in the Premier League where there's VAR, there's four officials, or you know they have all this extra help. The referee is the only person there on the pitch to make the decision the best they can. And unfortunately, sometimes you'll get it wrong, but most of the time they will get it right. And I think people just need to understand that they're human, and human error is involved in things when people have to make decisions like that. Yeah, yeah. And this this call now for uh, refs all over the, all over the country just to withdraw. If you don't have a ref, you don't have a game. I mean, people need to wake up here. Yeah, really do. And I think that's the big thing here. This has been kind of an empty threat for a long time. Is that if there's no ref, there's no game. And that's kind of been, you know, you need to watch what you're doing or this will happen. And people didn't really think it would. But it has, has happened. And games right across Dublin this weekend will be cancelled. And to be honest, there'll be games right across the country, from Dublin to Cork, that will be cancelled in the coming weeks because of people being abusive and threatening towards referees. And hopefully that will help some people realise when they're sitting on the couch on their Saturday instead of going out to play football or to bring their kids to football, they realise that actually, you know what, we're going to have to keep our mouth shut or we're not going to be getting a, a game on a Saturday. And by all accounts, and we've had you on the programme before in the past and, and we inevitably will get stories in from some of our listeners uh, from what happens on sidelines on GAA matches as well as at uh, soccer matches. But we'll never hear from families who have children involved with rugby. And when you watch a rugby match, you can see the level of respect for the ref. Do other sports look on with envy that rugby seem to get it right? Yeah, the rugby have been getting it right for quite a while now and I think they've a huge advantage in the, in the sense that the game is designed that if somebody's abused to a referee then you have certain advantages with moving the ball up and so on and so forth. But there's also a culture as well where everyone knows that you you don't speak to the referee and you don't threaten or abuse them in any way, shape or form because it's not accepted. And clubs know that and, and players know that and teams know that and as a result there's none of it in the game. And I think it's, it's just a cultural thing. And for some reason, um, soccer and GAA and many other sports, in fact, but a lot of them get away with it because there's just this culture where people can think it's okay, but they will be stomped it out in the beginning and it's never been involved in the game or never been a part of it. And um, It might creep in every once in a while, but... It's very it's rare. Very, yeah. very rare. Do you miss it, Harry? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, I, I'd, I'd often considered going back from time to time, but it it just seems to get worse. And to be honest, it's a while since I've refereed, but... By all accounts, if you, if you read the stories and you, and you hear what people have to say, it has only gotten worse and it's, it's only become a more prominent part of the game since I've left. So I miss it, but I, I don't think it's I'd dreadful. ever go back to it. It's dreadful to think that it's, that it's escalated, it's actually got worse. If it did improve, though, if the situation did improve, would you go back? Yeah, but we'd have to see proper action. Um, and I think this is the big thing. You know, the FAI speak out about this whenever it makes the headlines. And they promise that they will take action. They promise that they will put uh, measures in place. But they rarely do act on that. So and until you see real action, I, I certainly won't be putting myself in the middle of a pitch waiting for somebody to abuse me or, or threaten me. 
uh, for the sake of a couple of euros. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You have to keep yourself safe. Listen, Harry, thank you for that. And thanks, uh, thanks a million for joining us. Um, uh, good morning to you. That is Harry McGann, a young referee who was very much involved in schoolboy refereeing because of the abuse. He gave it up and it's just... It saddens me to hear him say that because he's been quite vocal in explaining why he gave it up and you would think when somebody goes that public and saying, look, this is what's wrong, you would like to think that things would improve. And if anything, it's getting worse. There just seems to be an escalation and it seems to be coming to a head this weekend with uh, referees threatening to withdraw. And if you don't have a referee, you ain't going to have a match. And just back to the Aviva and what happened with young um, Addison Whelan, the young Shelburne player who broke through security and managed to reach Ronaldo and got a big hug. And uh, Ronaldo actually said to, as you heard her say on this programme, Ronaldo actually said to the stewards who were chasing after her to get her off the pitch, go away, she's fine, leave her alone, leave her leave her alone and now we heard from Addison that her dad is going to be fined €3,000 and Addison is not allowed on to back into the Aviva until the €3,000 is spent. Mara said if anybody should be fined Morris feels it should be the security uh, people. They should be paying because Addison has showed up a flaw in their system if she was able to get onto the pitch at the end of the day she didn't cause any uh, trouble. She was watching the match um, she didn't cause any trouble to get on so somebody was looking at a game and not the people I'm sorry I don't know what that was um, she didn't cause any trouble anyway was the point that was made it wasn't a big riot that broke out because this young 13 year old girl or it wasn't even that Ronaldo was annoyed about the fact that this young girl managed to get up close to him and she was roaring out his name and he then approached her and John cannot believe when he's hearing that the family have been fined 3,000 euro it is a bit extreme that amount uh, of money the, it's a disgrace and particularly when it was a young 13 year old child was involved 1850 John Paul taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 Court today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor home business farm life and health insurance cmig.ie on refereeing and the abuse of refereeing listeners I said Trish I was at a match one day and this woman was giving the ref lots of advice he made his way over to the side of the pitch took off his whistle handed it to her and said there you go you ref you referee the match instead seeing as you seem to know it all she was quiet after that moment I'm sure she I'm sure she was and then Eddie and Bandon is saying why don't the soccer referees embrace the technology that is used for the rugby refs you know the way they all talk to each other and they've got the earpiece surely there's technology there that officials will be able to help out the refs but you see I think what we're talking about with Harry and where the abuse seems to be really bad is to do with underage soccer where in many cases there's probably only going to be the referee on the pitch they're not going to have loads of officials who are going to be able to back up the referee that's why the level of abuse uh, is is meted out to the ref because the ref is seen as the one doing all of the calls but yes there is certainly there's other technology there could the FAI start embracing that for sure I think they could You're listening to Cork Today on replay phone and text lines are currently closed in the last hour I started by mentioning one of our listeners who is in need of food and I have to say uh, first time I've ever 
being contacted by somebody, literally no food in the cupboard and just needed food to get them over the weekend. Can I just say a heartfelt thank you to so many people in the Bandon area because we needed to be somebody from the Bandon area because this listener lives in the Bandon area and we needed the food, the bag of food just to get her over the weekend to be dropped off at her house and literally loads of phone calls and texts and WhatsApps and people more than willing to help out. I mean, the kindness of people when we hear of somebody else in need, there's never a question mark. People just straight away didn't want to ask anything. Yeah, I'm there. What does she need? Uh, So anyway, we've... um, I'd left it to John Paul because he got inundated with calls and he's been speaking with somebody and we're passing on Jane's contact uh, details and air codes so that the items can be uh, dropped off. But thank you because lots of people were willing to to help out uh, Jane. And can I also just mention the Old Market Bar in Bandon. They were on to John Paul Straightway and they were willing to give Jane meals for the next three days that she could either collect even though she wouldn't be in a position to uh, collect but they were even willing to deliver which was a really, really kind, kind uh, offer and uh, we've passed on all the details to uh, Jane who is beyond thankful that other complete strangers are willing to uh, help her out and as I say she'll be okay for Monday because she's got some money coming in obviously her social welfare payment is coming in on a Monday and just to explain when I was saying that Jane has been helping out her daughter who she sees her daughter has needs because her daughter has this grandchildren involved in all of that and she's been giving every sort of last penny that she has to keep her daughter and the daughter's family going. The daughter is unaware of the level that Jane is going to. The daughter is unaware that Jane is giving every last euro she has and that she's leaving herself short to the point that this was the first week that this happened that she completely ran out of food so the daughter is unaware of that and that's why we're not using Jane's real name or anything like that because she doesn't want the daughter uh, to find out but it just struck me that the love of a mother when a mother feels that her young is in need she will go to any length including to go hungry in order to make sure that her daughter and her daughter's little family have enough food on the table she will go hungry herself It's it's just... It saddens me that this is happening in a country where, you know, we're deemed to be quite a wealthy country and that somebody can find themselves in that situation. So, as I say, thank you to everybody who has offered to help out and uh, hopefully Jane won't find herself in this situation again where people have been beyond kind and generous and we really do appreciate it. Now, a couple of other calls uh, in and actually there was a courier company as well from the Bandon area, a courier driver who wanted to help out. Uh, So, thank you. Um, We've We've got Jane sorted, but just to acknowledge people who have been very kind, just actually on couriers, there was a lovely WhatsApp in, if I can find it. It came in earlier from Glengarriff to say, Patricia, would you give a shout out to a lovely DPD driver by the name of Stephen? Now, we don't have Stephen's surname, but the Glengariff listener thinks that Stephen is from the Dunmanway area. The reason that she's contacted us this morning is Stephen, she said, played Santa for me this week. He put all the stuff in the garage and covered it up for me while I stayed in the house. He's a pure gentleman thanking you. Courier drivers and courier drivers, God knows they've never worked so hard in their entire lives and they can get a bit of flack and people giving out about them because it was just dropped at the door and they didn't wait for me to come out and 
they, you know, they really have a tough job at the moment. But there's somebody, well done to Stephen, as I say, just he works for DPD, but we don't have any other details. But he went above and beyond to help out that listener because I'm assuming if they were, if he was helping out with Santa, there were smallies in the house. So you couldn't see any of the packages, didn't want any of the packages to be seen. So well done, uh, Stephen. And uh, hopefully you're having a, a nice day and that you're driving safely. And then a listener, Marion from Grange and from what I was on to say Patricia electricity was turned off for nine hours in Grange West in Formoy yesterday now it was a planned out- outage so we did have plenty of notice but is eight hours says Marion is that not a bit excessive for a planned outage people have difficulties at a time when so many people are working from home and they're relying on their high speed broadband I'm just wondering is this linked in any way to the planned blackouts that we have been reading about in the papers and that's from from Marion I don't to be honest Marion I don't think it is I mean any of those planned outages they're done by the ESB networks and the ESB networks are responsible for maintaining and, and building our power uh, network and they need to have those outages because it reinforces the network if they want to increase capacity in an area or of course they have planned outages when they need to do repairs that might have been caused by uh, weather and for that reason power goes out for a certain period of time. Nine hours, yeah it, it does sound like a, lo- a long time but maybe they had a lot of work to do. Nine hours would be over the guy's eight hour working day for sure but maybe they had two, a couple of crews involved but I'm because they are, the ESB networks are really good at getting power back on as quickly as possible. And most times I've noticed, certainly in the past, when there's been a power outage, you might be told that the electricity will be gone from, say, nine to five or eight to four or whatever it is. And generally speaking, it, norm- it comes back earlier once they've got the job done. But you don't know when they start to do the work. Was it a bigger job than what they had anticipated? Did something happen while they were doing the job? You just you just don't know. But I, my gut instinct would tell me, Marion, it isn't in any way linked to power outages. But it does, and it did for the good people of Grange West and Formoy, give you a sense of what uh, and outages would look like. And we just, it's only when the electricity goes that we realise how much we actually rely on it. Thank you for your text, 0862 103 103. And another listener says, Patricia, I can't understand this whole thing that's going on with COVID and particularly with the numbers at the moment. And we're hearing from Neffet and the powers that be that we need to reduce our contacts. Only this week, Tony Houlihan was coming out saying, if you're meeting 10 people at the weekend or you're having 10 people over to your house at the weekend, maybe you might consider ringing up five of them and say don't call and reduce that number to five. He also suggested if you're going out for two nights over the weekend, maybe cancel one and only go out one night over the weekend. So we've been told to reduce our contact. But God almighty, thousands can go to a soccer match. Nightclubs are opened, packed to the rafters and the pubs are packed. So the only way out of this, I feel, is to lock us down again. Otherwise, people won't listen. That's my opinion. Thanking you. Would others agree that it is a lockdown we need? I've seen is that the Netherlands have decided their numbers just for, and I don't know what the explanation for it, but their numbers have gone through the roof and they now have with the wave they're currently experiencing of COVID. They have the highest numbers that they've ever seen and they've gone into a snap uh, lockdown. But certainly here, 
from both Neffet and the government, there is a sense that there's absolutely no appetite for another lockdown. And I think the majority of people, I don't know how many people will agree with our listener who feels a lot another lockdown is needed. I think the majority will say no. I think if we can try and stick to the basics. And I know that the government is coming under pressure to issue a new work from home uh, message because this is coming out from from Neffet and uh, the Neffet are urging people to work from home where possible and they're saying it's it's in a bid to get what are dangerously high now COVID-19 numbers to get them somewhere under control but our own health minister Stephen Donnelly had said earlier yesterday the government was not actively considering a return to working from home full time however there was a letter then sent to Minister Donnelly last night where Neffet recommended strengthening and reinforcing a whole range of public health messaging and we need to do it over the coming weeks and Neffet are saying that employees should be encouraged to work from home where possible and where it's feasible. Now they do recognise there are some workplaces that must and have to remain open but if people can work from home that's what they're saying where it is possible and feasible people should go back to working from home because more and more people have returned to the office. In those circumstances employers should be encouraged the ones that have to go to work to have protective measures while in the workplace. The Fresh Public Health Advice follows a meeting of NEFIT that was held this week to discuss what is now a deterioration of the COVID-19 situation. And it's understood Neffet's recommendations now gives the government enough leeway to make a final decision on working from home and the Cabinet Subcommittee are due to meet. It's already next week. I think it's Tuesday of next week or maybe they're meeting Monday and then the full Cabinet will meet on Tuesday. Public health officials will meet again in two weeks' time so they'll have another two weeks of figures to assess if the reinforced messaging has had any impact on driving down the case numbers amid growing concerns about the force of infections that are out there and are out there in the community at present listening to Barry talking about the numbers that are here in Cork there is still a lot of COVID-19 out in the uh, community and the bottom line is essentially the need to double down on making the messages clearer and reinforcing them and that's a quote from a senior public health uh, source who says the numbers really are dangerously high at the moment now Minister Michael McGrath the public expenditure minister he was speaking in the Dáil yesterday and he said all employees including those fully vaccinated should work from home unless required to be in the workplace it isn't a directive coming from the government at this stage but he's also recommending it Neffet is not advertising any new formal social or economic restrictions and that would be the lockdown that that listener is talking about but it is advising the government we need to strengthen the current public health messaging it would include you know emphasising advice for people reduce their discretionary contacts self-isolate if you're waiting uh, if you've got any symptoms go and get your COVID-19 test the amount of people we're hearing about who, who have symptoms go for a COVID test and are still out and about is absolutely frightening because while they're waiting to find out if they're negative or positive if it comes back positive they're then running the risk of spreading the the virus to other um, uh, people. So, you know, never to saying get back to basics. If you have symptoms, self-isolate, get your test, wait for your results. They're also talking about people not wearing masks uh, properly. 
and I certainly have noticed that there's a huge slippage you might see people out in supermarkets and they may have the masks on but the number of people that you'll spot who are not wearing their masks correctly earlier this week we had a number of listeners saying that they're watching people walking by the hand sanitising inside in shops others are saying you go into shops and the hand sanitizer is empty we need to go back to the basics the basics that we know did work and and do work. Minister Donnelly also said the government was not considering extending the vaccine pass system to other areas of the economy beyond pubs and restaurants. Now the reason that he's talking about that is Tony Houlihan on Wednesday was in favour of such a move. In particular he mentioned hairdressers and gyms. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin said he did not see Ireland returning to any kind of a lockdown for Christmas but booster jabs he said will be important along with testing and tracing and that does include antigen uh, testing. Micheál Martin said he didn't see a dramatic return to restriction but he did say that the high number of cases are wor- worrying and I saw the Chief Clinical Officer Colin Henry, uh, he, he said we're worried, he said we're worried not just about the hospital system but he said we're worried about the whole healthcare system. He says it's severely stretched at the moment and it's under strain whether that's with testing and uh, tracing. They're testing huge numbers at the moment and that's got a lot to do, not necessarily with COVID-19 but it's to do with, there are a lot of viruses out there at the moment that mimic COVID-19 and obviously anyone that comes down with one of these viruses, you have to find out for sure, is it COVID-19 or not? And then the number of people that they are testing and then they're doing contact tracing on people and they're sending out the antigen and it's only new of late that they've been sending out the antigen tests to people who are declared a close contact and hopefully that will start to have have effect. Actually, we had a situation in our house where Marcia was deemed a close contact. Bless her little heart. She doesn't go many places, but she still got deemed. She was in company of somebody who tested a positive. So we had a bit of a panic this week. But I have to say the HSC were great. They were on to us straight away, told us what to do because she's fully vaccinated. She, you know, she didn't have to self-isolate. But they sent on the antigen tests to us and I had to do antigen tests on, on day one day three and uh, day five for her every second day and glad to report she had her third negative antigen test uh, today but this morning uh, but it just it's just a complete worry when you're when you're you know god here we go again but I tell you something I had done just by sheer coincidence last Saturday I was in uh, my local chemist Horgan's at uh, Tesco, Tesco's in Mallow and I saw a spot at the antigen tests on the counter I said just up and I'll buy a packet of those just to have them so I had a box of the antigen tests uh, in so that when Marcia got declared close contact on Monday while I was waiting for the HSC to contact us and to do all the contact tracing and all of that I didn't have to wait for the HSC's pack to arrive in the post so I got the antigen testing underway as quickly as possible because I wanted to make sure she was safe and obviously that we were safe and that we were then working close contacts and all of that so if you and I know they can be hard to get some of the antigen tests I've heard of people saying that they're having difficulty getting them but keep a lookout in chemist uh, shops but they seem to be selling a huge amount of them so it's a kind of a handy thing to have in the in the cupboard normally at winter time you make sure you're stocked up in your cold and flu uh, remedies it looks like going forward we'll be stocking up on our antigen tests as well 1850-333-103 John Paul taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs Now Alps in Mill Street they're looking for general operatives email info at alps.ie 
Horgan Delicatessen Supplies there in Mitchellstown. They're looking for seasonal warehouse operatives and they're also looking for production operatives. You email CVs to jobs at horgans.com. Office Administrator Wanted Full-Time Position that's in the Kilavolan area. CVs to info at biogoldagri.ie and general operatives are wanted for an animal feed production facility that's in Little Island. CVs please to carry.murphy at osborne.ie and that's how our job link is looking today. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie Now Ireland declared its first case of COVID-19 on the 29th of February 2020. Seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? That first case then set in motion a chain of events that has led to over 5,000 deaths, mass unemployment and an entire country almost coming to a standstill. A new book detailing this extraordinary time in Irish history has been written by Virgin Media News correspondent Richard Chambers who joins me this morning to discuss A State of Emergency, the story of Ireland's Covid crisis. Good morning to you Richard. Morning to you Patricia, thanks for having me. Well listen, thank you for taking time out to uh, talk to us. Am I right in saying that this is your first book? It sure is, yeah. Okay. it's it was a, a daunting progress process to, to try and do it. You're sort of stare, staring at a blank screen on Microsoft Word. And you're like, oh my God, how do I do this? Well, it's it's an absolute page turner. It's jaw dropping at uh, times. And you have a natural gift. I can tell you that. I mean, you are a storyteller. You can see that in the way you report. But by God, there's a big difference between the spoken word and the written word. You've got a very really good talent for the written word so I don't think this is going to be your one and only book uh, for sure. Congratulations to you on it. It's great. But take me back. What prompted you to write it? Well, thanks so much for saying that. Um, but um, yeah, I suppose I, I, I sort of thought about it in 2020. I was like, well, is there anything I can do more on this? Because I write a book on this and I really, I sort of dismissed it at the time because I, I thought, well, I don't know if I have the time to do anything like that. But then I was approached in, in January this year to think about it and I was like, okay, if I was to do it, what sort of stories would I tell? How would I get it across? And, and sort of, because there's so much, if you, if you were to trying to write a, a, the definitive book about everything that's happened in COVID-19 in Ireland, you'd be well over a thousand pages. But just to be able to sort of pull out what's important, get a few different strands which sort of tell the full story, that was kind of what was exciting to me. And I did think that writing it at a time when everybody was still in their position, while the relationships, the tensions between all of the key players are real, I thought that was the right time to do it because I felt like if I did this in a couple of years' time and it was everybody was finished with COVID-19 and they were looking back, well, then you might get a very sort of sanitized account of it. And I think it was important just so people have an understanding of what was happening behind the scenes when all of these decisions were taken that governed our lives, that we did this now and that we did this while people were in their positions and people's memories were fresh as well. And people were willing to talk. Yeah, I was. Uh, there was there, there, I was very, very few people who didn't want uh, to sit down and do an interview for the book. People did see the value in the project. I do think I was blown away, I suppose, by the honesty, sort of the rawness of some of the stuff that people were saying about their experiences of it. So, yeah, there, there was hundreds, hundreds of hours of interviews sort of conducted for this, like going from, you know, both Taoiseachs uh, over the course of the of the pandemic, the CMO, the deputy CMO, head of the HSE, and then going down through other elements of it as well, people in different hospitals, GPs, 
you know, people's personal stories of COVID-19 because that's really what it is about. That's what I want to try and make sure because, you know, so often when we do talk about COVID-19, when it is in the media and the news, we tend to focus on, you know, statistics and trends, but that's really not what this is. This is a human story that affected every single one of us. Every single one of us has been affected by COVID-19 in some way. Uh, but to get the personal stories of people whose family members, I suppose, were, 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 were sort of, you know, paid the ultimate price for, for this was, yeah. was extremely important. And I have to say, when, when I started reading the book, I wasn't... Um expecting the rawness of the some of the personal stories. I mean, they're utterly heartbreaking. I mean, it wasn't a book that I was expecting. I was looking for the tissues. I was actually crying at, on some of the pages because they, they're just heartbreaking. Like, for example, the loss of uh, Dr. Ali, who worked in the, in the Marshall Hospital. Talk to me about Dr. Ali. Yeah, uh, Dr. Saeed Wakar Ali, he was, um, uh, he was originally from Pakistan, but he was an emergency uh, department doctor, a locum. He basically worked with across number of different hospitals on the east coast of Ireland. Uh, and he turned up for work one day at the Matter Hospital where he'd been regularly working at the start of COVID. And uh, he felt unwell and effectively was taken for testing and it, it turned out he had COVID. Um, he was an extraordinarily amazing, he's just a, a brilliant doctor. Um, he spent months in ICU before dying in, in last summer, in, in summer of 2020. The outpouring of, of grief at that time from healthcare workers, he was one of the first healthcare workers in this country to die of COVID-19. And it's a death that I think had a huge amount of impact across our health service, as well as the community. I do remember at the time, there was a huge amount of, oh my God, this is, this is I can't believe this is happening, was, was kind of the, the feeling. But from his patients who he'd worked with in the past, who he'd looked after, they always felt so supported and so seen by him. He always took a, a huge interest in their personal lives. So his loss was huge. And I suppose speaking to his family and in particular his daughter, Summer Ali, who now herself is a doctor in the Matter Hospital, to see the impact of his death, the grief that it caused, but also she's now taking her first steps in medicine, working effectively in the same hospital where her dad died. She had always hoped to work alongside him, that her first jobs in, in, in medicine in Ireland would be working alongside the person who had inspired her over all these years. And I know it was something that they both looked so forward to. So I suppose I'm just blown away by the strength of the Ali family, Summer in particular, and just really how they've they've sort of pulled each other through this and are still, you know, effectively she's working the floor above the ICU where her dad died. Well, and you, you recount that beautifully, I have to say, uh, towards the end of the book. But, you know, what, what the one thing I took from it was his spirit lives on. In, yeah. in his in, in his daughter and then everyone is aware of the the devastation uh, in our nursing homes but you've you've put a face to some of those deaths particularly one of our own uh, Sheena Murphy who died at Clan Community Hospital yeah I think this is important as well because do you, do you know there's actually something which I find it's tough to hear as a human it's tough to hear now when you start to see it creeping into commentary both online and almost sometimes in politics as well about oh, it's only people in nursing homes who are affected. So it's older people or people with underlying conditions. But I find just extraordinarily uncaring, really. Sheila Murphy was just one of the most amazing people anyone could possibly meet. I was actually, I met a nurse who actually was one of the people who looked after her in Clonic Hills Community Hospital last night. And she was telling stories about how wonderful she was. So she died in Clonic Hills Community Hospital in the first wave um, in, a, in an awful outbreak in the community hospital there. And she was just so loved. I mean, I, I, I was speaking actually to a nurse who, who helped her last um, last spring when she basically the last time Sheila saw her, 
her husband Connor was on the phone, as so many of the good boys were over FaceTime, effectively, and and him singing "You Are My Sunshine" to her hmm. as 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 she was going. I mean, it's just it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to process, but. Her family and their their resilience and how we we sort of move on from those losses which we've experienced so much over the last year is something that I think is going to stick with so many communities. Cork and Clonakilty in particular, I mean, there's such a community spirit in in places like West Cork. And I think that we will have to try and find space to remember people and to continue to remember that this isn't something that we sort of mentally close a chapter on when when we come through it. Because I think that's something which we tend to do in this country sometimes and I hope that we don't. Yeah, and I remember particularly with Clan Community Hospital speaking with here in the programme with somebody who'd volunteered to help out the local undertaker and, you know, talking about going into Clan Hospital to pick up somebody, the remains of somebody who died uh, from COVID and the respect and the dignity that was being shown by the staff who were all devastated. They were absolutely. And on that point, I mean, hospital staff all over the country will take a very long time to get over what they witnessed, especially the deaths, Richard. Absolutely. I think that's an interesting point, Patricia, as well. It's like, I mean, I know so many nurses who I've spoken to over the course of the pandemic who are thinking now, as soon as this is over, they're emigrating. Just because of the impact of what they've, they've gone through, they don't feel like the health service is respected. You know, the, the, the sacrifices that they made. But sometimes we have this view that, you know, people can, like, if you're a professional and you're working in a hospital, that you're somewhat detached from things, but you're just not. Like, there was people, for example, in the Matter Hospital in Dublin, staff there, who, at a time when people weren't allowed in to visit their loved ones and they were extraordinarily sick in hospital, they made sure that they set aside time just to sit with them so that nobody had a risk of dying alone. Because that, and that just speaks to the humanity, just the, the enormous compassion that is there within our health service, amongst our doctors, our nurses, our HVAs, our porters in particular as well. Like, for example, one of the one of the, the, the most extraordinary characters I met over the course of the book was Ken A. Byrne, who's a porter in the Matter Hospital in Dublin. He's often, for so many people, the human face of this. And what was so interesting is that, you know, the impact on the humanity of the connection we build with people, so patients in hospital and the porters, and they're all wearing PPE, that just created this sort of shield in between what's normally like even locking eyes with someone and touching shoulders and stuff like that at a time when we need support, just the impact that that had on people. And that could be so strange and just just otherworldly that we had these you know, separations in our lives at a time when we needed them the most. Yeah, and it also explains why the death of Dr. Ali had such an effect on all of the hospital staff, because all of them realised they were, for the grace of God, go any of us, and they were going into work knowing that they were risking their own lives. Yeah, I think that's what, what's extraordinary as well, is that, you know, you... you sort of speaking to staff in the ICU in the matter, there were a number of ICU nurses, for example, who were um, who, who effectively became ill with COVID-19 and were being looked after by the people they'd worked and trained alongside. And that happened in other hospitals too. That you had, especially if you think, think about ICU, and for example, that is so highly specialised and trained. Like these people are effectively a family. They spent years of their lives working alongside each other, trying to save lives. And then they themselves, are in the firing line. They're the ones whose lives are then on the line. And that's like that, 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 that emotional topsy turviness that people had to go through and just the worry and the stress and their families too, who are worried at home, you know, watching the news bulletins at night and worrying about their loved ones who are, you know, working over and above the call of duty every single day to make sure as many people came home from hospital having survived COVID-19 and themselves were in, were in danger. 
that sacrifice, I think, is something that I really hope that we all reflect on, that we all just make sure that we are thankful for it. Because yeah. I know we did things like the clap for heroes, there was posters for, you know, supporting our frontline heroes. It's something that we take on with us, that we do remember that when we move on from this pandemic. Yeah, because it's going to take many of, that, many of those staff a long, long time to get over what they've witnessed over the last 18 months and it still isn't even over yet. Go back though to the beginning, the early days and the scramble for PPE uh, gear, that part of it, the beginning part of your book, we came very close in this country. To, we did, uh, to, yeah. And hospitals would, wouldn't even have been aware how close we came to running out. No, and I think there's, there's one person whose story I told in the book. It's, it's um, the head of the procurement, effectively, in the HSE. It's a man called Sean Bresnan. He's extraordinary. Just a really lovely guy. And he just went out of his way to make sure that we got through this. Because at the start, I think people remember it, but the, the amount of scrambling and piracy, as Paul Reid described as the HSE, for PPE with countries effectively stealing off each other and hijacking each other's orders. We were effectively, at one point, so close to a situation where the the amount of PPE, gloves and masks and gowns being sent to hospital was going to be halved because we were, hadn't received an order from China. Effectively, there was a team from the HSE standing on the apron alongside the rope runway at Dublin Airport waiting for an order to arrive. And it's been described to me as sort of a Dunkirk moment that, you know, the virus was here, the enemy was at the gate, and the only tools we had to protect our healthcare workers we weren't sure about whether we were get it. In the matter, they were a day from running out of mass. And for a hospital of that size to be in that situation, this was really skin of the teeth stuff. And I think there's actually, from speaking to people on Neffet, they feel at times there was just an enor- a huge amount of chance and just luck that got us through a situation where we didn't end up at times in a place like northern Italy or in a situation like we've seen sometimes in the US or even across the water in the UK where we had you know, health workers stapling bin bags together or in just in a situation where huge amounts of health workers were becoming sick and ill with this. We came very, very close to that. I think that's something which I really did want to highlight in the book as well. Because did, that's something yeah. we only learned as well. Yeah. That's just how close we came to a, a really un- unmitigated catastrophe. Because when we watched those Aer Lingus planes touch down in Dublin Airport and, oh, we're all safe. Should look at all the boxes of things that are mm. arriving. It was a drop in the ocean to what was actually needed. Yeah, it was. I think so many of us, when we saw that at the time last March, and we saw the, you know, we heard like even the air traffic controller speaking to the, the Aer Lingus pilots who were dropping the stuff back. And there's that enormous sense of national pride at the time. But this stuff was being gone through at an enormous rate. And I know that there's a political sort of look at the moment about, do we really need all that? And there was at the time as well, even within the Department of Social Protection, do we really need all of these masks? And I think there was a huge pushback in people in the health service and people who actually using these masks and these gowns were like, oh my God, I can't believe that they're actually questioning this. We have this, we need this stuff to get through. We're burning through it at an enormous rate. This is one use stuff. Yeah, effectively, that that supply chain became so, so important. You had even, like, the HSE, you know, built up this relationship with the Chinese ambassador who they, they, he's a guy called Ambassador who they became, they came to know him as Doctor Who. Uh, in the HSE, given the, the the role he played in getting this stuff in, mm. but it was so important, and you know there was a huge amount of sacrifices made. There was great donations made by just people who were working in the private sector as well. You know there was a huge effort to try and keep things running, and it almost wasn't even enough, even at the time. Yeah, I mean, we even had builders who were donating masks at one stage, which seemed absolutely bizarre that you would have a, builder, a building supply company donating to a, a, a local hospital. And then with great detail, you outline the lead in to Christmas of last year. 
and how it all went wrong. And I have to say, when I got to read that section of the book, it felt to me like, you know, when you pick up a book about the Titanic and you know that the ship is going to sink, but you can't put the book down, you know where it's going. And there was that sense of that. You And it's the way you build it up is, is, is really very clever. If the disagreement between Neffet and the government in October, Richard, if that didn't happen, us moving, the effort wants us to move to level five. Do you believe the government would have handled Christmas differently? I think there would have been a different dynamic, definitely, Patricia. Like, it was, it was just interesting over the course of the book. Everybody's kind of pointed to this row in October when Tony Houlihan arrived back and he recommended the level five restrictions the government pushed back. I remember Leo Varadkar was on TV saying that they hadn't thought it through and that nobody on effort would ever be on the PUP. That row and how that was handled, I think, completely coloured the run into Christmas. And people on Neffet and in government believe that's the case as well, that there was this huge misunderstanding, that communications broke down. Neffet was scrambling around on phone calls over the course of that weekend when Tony Hulen came back trying to think, how do we manage this? We can't just land this on the government. And it would be something which Neffet people would say was a huge misstep by Tony Hulen, but also then the government and how they took that message about the, the emergency of the situation was just poor on the other end as well. There was a huge amount of anger and open glee at you know, sort of the, 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 the attack on Tony Houlihan and Neffet by Leo Varadkar on, on Claire Byrne that time. That row really did colour things. I think that there was a view that if, you know, that among some people in government that, oh, they predicted doom around then, but we didn't have doom in, in October. So why would we listen to them now? But there was this feeling, and it was actually one of the most sobering things I did hear over the course of the book. There was a feeling amongst people um, on Neffet when they made their contribution before the announcement of the loosening of restrictions going into Christmas that they felt that because the government hadn't listened to them they, they felt that the failure was on them as public health experts that we that they hadn't convinced the government that it wasn't the government's failure for, um, for going a different path but it wasn't they clearly didn't convey the seriousness of the situation enough I think there's going to be a huge focus on that that whole interaction both in October and last Christmas when we do get around to an inquiry around how all this was handled. But there is a feeling and there is a, a, a dwelling on that October row amongst people who are involved in the decision-making and they're like, we really wish that that hadn't happened because it did sort of bring that Neffet versus government dynamic, that whole row, really to a whole new level. And things, you know, things have improved since Christmas in terms of how that's all handled. But those wounds haven't healed. The way that people in government and the Neffet talk about it, there clearly is an underlying tension still there. Yeah, and then to have, you know, Micheál Martin, among others, you know, saying after Christmas into January and February when it really all went pear-shaped and let's not, you know, lives were lost because of it, you know, if we knew then what we know now. Is there a huge sense of guilt on behalf of the government for the decisions they took leading into last Christmas? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know if guilt is the word. I do think there was an enormous weight of responsibility, and some, some ministers talk about this very openly. Like, for example, Pascal Dunne, who the finance minister, talked about how in early January, as we were sort of seeing you know, our ICUs pushed to the brink of capacity and people dying in horrendous numbers, that he was sort of rooting through his desk, looking back through cabinet papers and briefs, you know, saying, how, how did we let this happen? What did we miss? What did we get wrong? But there are some, obviously there's a huge amount of ministers who say, OK, our decision was a big mistake uh, that we did c- c- contribute to a situation where we did see, you know, Ireland's incidence rate of this become the worst in the world. That we did have, you know, over a thousand people, a thousand lives lost over the course of January, which is unthinkable really now, even at this point. I think that there's, 
an enormous amount of reflection. Some ministers who I did speak to, and it was quite surprising to hear it, still feel that there had no role to play in it. There's one minister in particular I think of who said to me that would things have been better or worse if we followed the Neffet advice? And I think that that's something when you put that to other people in government as well as other people in Neffet, they're like, I can't believe that there are still people who think that way. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. that, that, that there is this fear that were the public health experts completely wrong and we were just right and we actually picked the better of two options. And I when, don't think, yeah. Yeah, and when, when the coalition was formed, Simon Harris, he wanted to stay on as health minister. Do you think he would have handled things differently to the way Stephen Donnelly has and is? Interesting question, and he did. He did. He very much did want to stay on in the Department of Health, and and, and he did for many months after the decision to, to sort of switch health minister. He did sort of pine after his whole department. I think there's a view, and it, it's important. But I did, I did think, from a public interest point of view, to sort of look at how the various ministers handle things and how they were received by the HSE and the Department of Health. There is a view among among some people, senior uh, at a senior level in NEPA and the HSE, uh, who are dissatisfied with how Stephen Donnelly handled things as the Minister for Health, um, how he sort of responded to their advice, how he sort of dealt with, you know, things as they as they cropped up. But there is actually an interesting point is that they felt that over time, the person responsible really for COVID sort of shifted away from being the Minister for Health to Micheál Martin. Like Micheál Martin took on this very hands-on role and so did his civil servants in the Department of the Taoiseach, people like Martin Fraser and... Um, uh, 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 Liz, um, sorry, I forgot her name there. Canavan? Yeah, Liz Canavan, of course, yes. But they, would, um, but they took on a very sort of hands-on role in how COVID was managed. So effectively, you'd have Tony Hood or Leo Varadkar or Michal Martin, sorry, would be on the phone regularly to um, Tony Houlihan and Paul Reid, just sort of getting, getting the direct line from them that he wanted to sort of have, that there would be nothing lost in the messaging, whether that's through the health minister or through any other prison, that he wants to know directly from his top advisors, from the top experts, what was happening. So that's an interesting change in the dynamic uh, that did happen as time moved on. Mm, and he's uh, Stephen, Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, he's not that happy with your book. Did I hear him say he hasn't bought it and, and he won't uh, uh, read it? Has that affected your relationship with him at press conferences? Ah, no, I wouldn't no. say so. I mean, no, it's a professional relationship Good. as you would have with any other minister. I mean, it is interesting. Uh, obviously, I was quite surprised at the time when you do hear that um, that sort of said about it. And I think it's important that people in political life as well as in the health service, and I know a lot of them are reading it, but I do think it is important that we sort of reflect on it. Because the book isn't just about politics. It's not just about Stephen Donnelly. So I think there's important lessons for people within the Department of Health to take from this, particularly the personal stories. Mm. People like Sheila Murphy in Clonakilty, people like frontline workers in CUH, people like uh, Karina Sadler, uh, Mary Horgan, who are working there and has extraordinarily huge roles in leadership and how we got through this. I think that their reflections on things should be listened to by people in politics because we don't know when the next pandemic is going to arise. We don't know when we're going to be in a situation like this again. Uh, these new pathogens and virus seem to arise at a more, you know, more regularly than they have done in the past. So I do think it's important that we do take the learnings from this. Yeah, and God knows, Richard, we're still not out of this one. And we can also finally lay, lay claim to part of this book being a Cork book because you wrote some of it in uh, West Cork. Because, of course, you've got a great West Cork collect- connection in that your partner is the wonderful Louise O'Neill. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, um, I mean, if you're, if you're the first person to read the book, uh, and I tell you, there's nothing more nerve-wracking than handing over a book when you've never written one before to somebody who knows a thing or two about writing them. So, like, Louise wouldn't ever sugarcoat it. Like, so I was like, this is, 
you would be extraordinarily nervous when you're handing the thing over. But she was very, she was great for just being able to sort of say, would you explain what that is? You know, things like even like R numbers and contact tracing, all these complicated things that we've all sort of collectively taken on yeah. had to learn and understand. Things we'd never think that we'd ever have to learn, things about epidemiology in our normal lives. But um, she was great for sort of pointing out things that needed to be explained and stuff like that. But no, she was great support all the way through. But yeah, I'm, like, I'm enormously proud of uh, the West Cork connection. I'm, I'm in trying to kill you at the moment, actually. Brilliant. So, um, you're, you're, yeah. No, but no better, basically. And listen, going into the future, if you keep up the writing, which I feel sure you will after this incredible book, yourself and Louise in the future could become the Maeve Binchy and the Gordon Snell. They used to sit, <laughs> they used to sit together and write all the time. And well, share that's, that's, each other's notes. Say, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? So that's, that's what you could be into the future. Will there be a revised edition of this book next year or will there be a whole new one, do you think? I think it's, I've, I've, this is my contribution to, to this. There will be other journalists and other authors who will want to have their go at it. And I think that's important that we do that as well. There's a different perspective in it. Like I know that there is a, a, another book which is coming out early next year which examines purely the political end of things. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do another version of this um, to, to sort of update the full story of it. Because I don't think the full story is ever going to be told. It's only ever, it's sort of like a patchwork quilt where different accounts will sort of come together to do this. Um, so I think that, that, that this is my contribution to that, really. But again, yeah, the full story hasn't been told. Some of the full story will never be told, yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but hopefully that we start to... We start well, to get as full of pictures as possible in the new year. It is an absolutely cracking uh, read and uh, to anyone who hasn't read it, I'd suggest go out and get it. A State of Emergency, the story of Ireland's COVID crisis and somebody's straight away said, I'm reading Richard's book at the moment. It is fantastic. It is. Listen, Richard, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. It's a privilege, Patricia. Thank you so Good much. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Richard Chambers, news correspondent with Virgin Media. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Some of your thoughts coming in with regards to COVID. Jackie from Malice says, Hi Patricia, I personally think COVID is not going away anytime soon. People are definitely slacking with regard to masks, hand washing and social distancing. It really is as if we're just threading water at the moment, despite all the efforts from our wonderful doctors and healthcare workers. We're no further forward, really. Okay, the shops are open, businesses are functioning, but the figures are now similar to what they were 18 months ago. I think we need to learn to live with it, but we need to up the basics and go back to basics. I know several people who were doubly vaccinated but who have contracted COVID and some of them were very unwell. No one is invincible. And well, how right you are, Jackie, and we know that when you get vaccinated, it just stops you getting very sick in that you'll need hospitalisation and ICU and ultimately try to protect people from uh, dying, but that it doesn't stop you getting the uh, COVID-19. You're so right. And you're saying exactly what Tony Houlihan is saying is we need to go back to basics. We need to make sure that we're doing the social distancing and the hand washing and all of that, how, how right uh, you are. Thank you for your uh, text. Hi Patricia, on the point of sanitising going into shops, I used to sanitise them one day and it actually burnt my hands. There's no regulation on what is in these unmarked uh, bottles. I now have to use my own san- sanitizer. Well that's, yeah, you can get allergies, you can have one sanitizer that'll work perfectly for you and suddenly you'll go and use another one that will cause some kind of an allergic reaction in your hands so you do have to be careful and if you're very sensitive hands, you're doing the right thing in using your own sanitizer because you know that your own sanitizer is uh, 
suits you. Uh, Micah says, hi Patricia, listening to you talking about COVID-19 and the rising case numbers, I for one, and I'm not one bit surprised, we've opened nightclubs as cases were rising. We surely were sending out all the wrong signals. It's like, Usher, it'll be grand. I hope to God I'm wrong, but I have a feeling another year of no uh, Christmas. It's so unfair on those who are trying to do the right thing. I know most are vaccinated, but some people seem to have completely lost the run of themselves. That is from uh, Michael. And a lot of people reacting to my interview with uh, Richard Chambers and saying, what a great interview and um, it's a great book as well it really is it's a, it, it reads like a novel almost except that you're realising this is what happens to this country for the last 18 months so it definitely is uh, worth the read and Ian and Glamire said listening with interest to Richard Chambers talking about what has happened with uh, COVID and he said he got to them chatting at work this morning uh, where where when you're in a workplace you can't ask somebody if they're vaccinated or not but he said a lot of people now are organising Christmas parties he said what happens when the official can't ask policy meets the official must ask policy at a venue well you'll find out then who's vaccinated and not vaccinated if they want to go to the Christmas party thanks for your call Ian to 1850 333103 let's stay on the theme of Christmas though because the everyman is delighted to announce the much-anticipated return of Cork's favourite traditional family pantomime as we enter a whole new world. This year's show, Aladdin, is sure to enchant children and delight audiences of all ages. To chat about this year's panto, I'm joined from the everyman by their artistic director, and that is Sophie Motley. Good, good afternoon to you, Sophie. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you're very welcome. Do you think we need panto this year more than ever? Oh my goodness, I think we're screaming out for it. We just need a bit of joy. We need a bit of escapism and we need to laugh. And you're you're doing a shorter run than normal this year. Is that all down to COVID? It is, yes. It's taken us a long time to make the decision to uh, press go on having a panther this year because we've had to consider very seriously all the health and safety concerns surrounding what's going on at the moment. So it will be a shorter run. We won't have an interval, which means there won't be as many people getting up and sitting down as there usually would be. And um, it's all intended to make people feel and be as safe as humanly possible within government guidelines. Well done, well done. And I know you you will ask for things, I'm assuming, like COVID passes? Yes, absolutely. Um, all adults will need to bring their COVID passes and bring their masks and wear their masks while seated. We're following... Uh, all the current indoor hospitality guidelines. And even though you can have 100% capacity, you're opting not to? We are hoping to gradually build up the capacity um, to 100%, depending on where we're at, really, in terms of guidelines. So um, we've been working up to a 60% capacity through the jazz and through the film festival. And we're hoping that by the end of the panther, we will be at 100% capacity. Because you did reopen in September, and so you've all the safety procedures in place at this stage then? We do, yes. So our teams have been working really hard since September. So we started with 50 people. We've gradually built that up so that we've got a fantastic system for making sure people are distanced, queuing properly, able to get their drinks whilst also being distanced. And um, 
And I think it contributes to feeling safe walking into a, a space. Yeah, yeah. Well, I heard of somebody who was at one of your the gigs during the jazz and said that they felt in, hugely enjoyable night but felt very safe. And that's what it's all about. It's about people uh, feeling uh, safe. Has it affected the cast in that? Have you limited the numbers in the cast? We have. And I think the one big change will be that we don't have any children on stage. Okay. Um, because we've got very strict rules of numbers of people we can have on stage. So the cast will be smaller, but not much smaller. And again, we'll be limited to the number of musicians we can have as well. Okay, but it won't take from the panto in any way. Have you been watching any of the rehearsals, Sophie? The first rehearsal is about to happen and I've been part of the casting process and I'm really excited to be sitting in the rehearsal. Uh, And of course, it's it's CADA, it's, it's Catherine... It is Mahan Buckley and, and the wonderful and the wonderful Carter crew. It is. Uh, it's the crew that that is the traditional Everyman Panther crew, and they're beyond excited to be to be coming back because it's been touch and go all year, really. Yeah, yeah, and they they so missed it uh, as well. Are tickets on sale at this stage, Sophie? Tickets are now on sale. Yeah, so you can pop into the Everyman. You can ring us up, or you can go online. And did, we didn't mention the dates. So when are you running from to from when to when? From the 8th of December to the 15th of January. Okay, and there will be matinees? There will be matinees. Uh, There's a couple of days when we'll have three performances so that it's a little bit more spaced out. Okay. Um, So again, you know, if you and your family are worried about um, being around lots of people, then the January performances will be a little bit quieter. Well done, you're covering all the all the angles uh, for sure. And Aladdin is such a glory, the music in it, but it's just, it's just a glorious story and everything. It's just, it's so suited to Panto. It is, and I think the idea of being whisked away to a faraway land is <laughs> what we all need at the moment. I'd like a magic carpet in oh, my life right now. <laughs> wouldn't we all, Sophie, wouldn't we all? The best of luck to you and everybody involved in the Everyman's Panto uh, this year. And thanks a million for taking time out to talk to us. Thanks so much. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon to you. Bye bye. That is Sophie Bye. Motley, uh, Everyman's Artistic Director. And tickets now officially on sale at uh, the, you can go to the uh, everyman.com uh, or call them 021-450-1673 if you want to book your tickets to go to the Panto. It's all about Christmas, isn't it? And it's, for many people, a traditional Christmas, part of a traditional Christmas is going along to the uh, Panto. Good luck to everybody involved there. OK, some of your texts coming in. Hi Patricia, I'm having trouble contacting the council. I'm trying to see if the tunnel road between Glengariff and Kenmare is open at the moment. And the reason I'm questioning it is the last time I tried to drive there, it was closed. Any help would be gratefully appreciated. That's from Catherine. So has anyone this week today ideally, driven from Glengariff to Kenmare and did you go via the tunnel road? If so, can you let us know because Catherine needs to make a journey. 1850 333 says, Hi Patricia, just a quick well done to Sarsfield's Camogie Minor team. They were crowned county champions last weekend. Super year for the team and that's from Finbar O'Brien who's the coaching officer at uh, Sarsfields well done to the Camogie minor team there and Dennis in Knocknaheeny says I can't believe what I was hearing about the FAI finding that young supporter for her dream moment running onto the pitch in the Aviva and getting a hug from Ronaldo or maybe we might have to commend them on their initiative and foresight in probably thinking Ronaldo will pay 
the €3,000 fine and that's from uh, Dennis in Knocknaheeny 1850 333 103 The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing community and business supports all across the county See corkcoco.ie St Vincent de Paul in band and they are planning to deliver vouchers to those in need this Christmas. If you or somebody you know needs help, details can be given in confidence to St Vincent de Paul. You do it by dropping a note into their letter box that's at their shop on Weir Street or you can drop it into the box in St Patrick's Church or you can call them 023 Blackwater Valley Makers have a brand new premises at 12 McCurtain Street in Formoy and they're inviting people to help celebrate. They've got a wine reception and music which will be done amongst their beautiful arts and crafts. It's tonight from half six to eight and the makers are privileged to welcome RTE executive producer Sarah Ryder as their guest speaker this evening. And CBS Mitchellstown relaunching their online bingo. It starts today, eight o'clock tonight. Books can be bought online or from the school, also available in local shops. While driving bingo is on in Kildallery Creamery Yard tonight at eight. And Tim League bingo is going ahead tonight. They've got a half eight start. Proof of vaccination is necessary to attend the Tim League bingo. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. The Irish Sun has launched a new Irish true crime podcast called The Making of a Detective. The series will tell the story of five of Ireland's most notorious murder cases told through the lens of the man who once solved them that man being former detective inspector Pat Mary, who joins me to discuss the Rachel Car- Car- Here's a cool fact A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact You can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. case, and of course, Pat, also author of The Making of a Detective. Good afternoon to you, Pat. Patricia, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for joining us on the programme. I mean, Rachel O'Reilly, Rachel Callaly, I think everybody will remember this case, brutally murdered in her home in the Knoll in 2004. How quickly did you start to suspect that her husband, Joe O'Reilly, 
might have been involved? Well, uh, initially, like, you know, I'm a qualified uh, senior investigating officer and uh, with uh, any case uh, like that, obviously, uh, a husband would be a person of interest. But as we dug into Joe a little bit more in the early stages, he was found out to be telling lies in respect to, number one, his his, uh, affair with Nicky Paddy, and number two, about his um, phone uh, communications that morning. Uh, He told me himself that uh, he only spoke with Nicky Paddy at 12 o'clock that day, but his phone record showed that from uh, half five in the morning he was on to her for 25 minutes for the first call, like, you know. So here was a guy who was willing to tell us lies and we could catch him out. So why was he uh, like that, you know? So look, as we, we found blood on, on his shoes that he handed to us. Uh, I took the pair of shoes off him that night. I met him, like I said, we have obviously footprints at the scene and we want to eliminate. Uh, and he says, fine. And he went off and he got a pair of shoes, the boots, and he brought them down and gave them to us. We put them in an evidence bag. But when we did uh, examine those uh, shoes, we did find very small uh, spots of blood on the left inner part of the shoe between the lace, let's say, and the sole. And um, that sort of, uh, we were wondering, how did he get that? Now, he did tell us that he moved a box in at the, the, the scene with blood on it, like, you know. Mm. Uh, but And his was, and his demeanour uh, passed that day? Yeah, he was, he was, I spoke to him, I went to the scene, uh, I had a look at uh, the scene, we got it preserved, and I went in and had a look, and I seen Rachel there, and I could, I could tell you two things that I, that struck with me. Number one, it wasn't a burglary, because the way things were thrown around and pulled out, that burglars don't do that type of thing. And secondly, the viciousness of the wounds on, on Rachel's head and that, and the, the scene itself, like, it spelled to me that someone hated this woman, like, you know, it was a, it was a hate, it wasn't, um, a burglar doesn't want to kill anyone, he'd push them out of the way or get out, like, you know, gone if he was confronted, he's not going to turn around and, you know, um, repeatedly hit them with a, a blunt object. I mean, literally bash the living yeah. daylights out of somebody because... Yeah, yeah, and that's, that was it, and that's what it was. And I remember saying that I came out and I spoke to my superintendent outside and he says, well, you had a look. I said, I did. He says, what did you see? I said, number one, it's not a burglary. He said, that's correct. And uh, I said, number two, I said, whoever done this, I said, had a hate for this lady. I said, it was, you know... A, you know, he says, that's correct. That's what I've seen. He says, go and talk to the husband. He's out of the front gate. And that's exactly what I did. Made my way out to the front gate. And Joe Riley was standing there on his own. Um, a big lump of a man, like, well, over six foot, like, you know, a big man, uh, well built. Uh, you know, I introduced myself, shook his hand and told him uh, we'd be investigating this and we'd get to the bottom of it. And I told him not to talk to the media. And uh, I asked him for a phone number that I can contact him on. Um and he said, fine, he gave me a phone number. And later I discovered that phone number was Rachel's. So he didn't give me his own phone number. Anyway, um, we met him that night in his, parent, in, in his mother's house in Dunlear. And uh, I asked him again for his phone number. And again, again, he gave me Rachel's. And I said, hang on now. I said, that's Rachel's number you gave me. I said, I've asked for yours. Oh, yeah, all right, right. I said, I asked for yours earlier on. I said, you gave me Rachel's. Why did you do that? Oh, I thought you were looking for Rachel's. He said, you know, uh, yeah, so so literally, literally yeah, from, within from, within hours, yeah, with, within hours. Well, and he was he was he was he was sort of person that we were had to look into more because 
he wasn't uh, truthful with us, like, you know. And then we discovered, and obviously the affair with Nicky Pelly was, he told us and he told me, and I made notes of it, uh, he told me, look, he said, I'm, I, 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 uh, I did have an affair, and uh, this was the third time I asked him, like, you know. And the reason that it, 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 it sort of struck with me was because I asked him, the first question I asked him that night was, who would have killed Rachel? And he said he didn't know. And I said, had she any enemies? And he said, no, she had no enemies. And I said, maybe she was having an affair and it was some disgruntled wife had got had this done. Oh, no, he said, neither of us were having affairs. And I that struck with me. And I said, why did he bring himself in under that, the umbrella? The answer to that, under like, you know, why did he bring himself into that? And I asked him a second time, did you have an affair? And he said, no. And it went on anyway. And before we left the house, like I stood and faced him and looked him straight in the eye and I said, Joe, are you having an affair? Now, he looked at me and he probably sensed from me that, you know, I'm going to get to the bottom of this anyway. So he said, uh, I did have an affair. I said, who did you have the affair with? He said, with Nikki Pelly. And I said, he, she was a girl I worked with. And I said, he said, it was it's all over now, he said. And that was it. And I don't want my family to know about it. Right. And he says, things were rocky between myself and Rich. But everything was fine now. Everything was fine. And that was grand. So... When we spoke to Nikki Pelly, obviously she had a different story. She said she was in a relationship with mm. Joe. So Joe was saying that this was over. And then when we looked at his phone records, he was talking to her at half five in the morning, like, you know. Yeah. You and know, the so scene, like one, the one long phone call, like 25 minutes. Like, what were they talking about? Like, well, 25 minutes. Like, yeah, that's not a quick hello. How are you? Um, yeah. And past the scene in the house that day, um, just... I mean, it just seems unbelievable, even to, if I can use the word, hardened detectives uh, like yourself. And that was the scene that Rose, Rachel's mother, would have walked in on. And that just seems unbelievably cruel that because he sent her when the kids weren't picked up from school. That's when the alarms were raised. He rang and said, I'll go get the kids. You go check on Rachel, knowing that that's exactly yes, what Rose absolutely. and mother would do. That's beyond yeah, it was cruel. Part of, yeah, it was part of, yeah, it was. And it's part of his plight to distance himself from, uh, do you know what I mean? It couldn't have been me that, that done this, like, you know, and, and uh, you know, he was sort of knowing exactly what she was going to find, like, you know, and it was a really, really cruel, is not the word, but, like, uh, Rose was, like, you know, I remember, like, when I went to the scene, Rose was there and some of the family and uh, Jim, uh, her husband was there and, I could hear the crying and the screams inside, like the pure grief and disbelief. Like you know, it's hard to hear. You, you hear people's voices, but the sound and the tone of their voices are really painful. Like you know, and I had to go in and move them out of the house, which I did. And and that um, was hard. That was a difficult was, thing. Do you to preserve uh, well, the scene? Uh, yeah, you have to. Yeah, yeah. But you have to. But I remember Jim, and he apologised many of the times since, and he says. That's my daughter down there. That's my daughter that's dead now. Like, he was really, really, like, in the depths of, of shock, like, you know, and disbelief. And he said it to me several days later, because I remember it was Rachel's birthday a couple of days after that, and I, I called up to the house with a bunch of flowers for them, and I remember sitting down on the couch with them, and Jim saying, I'm very sorry, I didn't know. I was just, I said, look at Jim, I totally understand, like, you know, don't, you don't have to apologise to me, as I know. 
what you what you were going through. And yeah, that, you were you were a dad in grief, and ultimately yeah. then, and and I remember like the whole country followed the case uh, so did, closely, yeah. and ultimately it was the mobile phone technology, which was in its infancy, very different to what it is yeah, uh, today. It was, yeah. But it was we, the, we, it was the pinging of the mobile phone off various masts that it was, that of caught course, him. Yeah. Yeah, well, what, what Joe, that night and I made notes of it, and, and which was very important to I said to Joe about his phone, did he have his phone with him all that day? And he said he did, that he had his phone with him all the time. So that was one aspect. And the thing about people who had rang him or spoke to him or sent him text and he replied to that, they all acknowledged that it was Joe's phone and it was Joe that they were in contact with, like, you know. So he couldn't say, look, I left the phone somewhere else or I lost it or whatever, like, you know. So we had that fairly well tied down that he had his phone and he had it on him. So we could see from the cell site analysis that the phone, uh, he was supposed to be working in Broadstone in, in Phillipsborough, you know, because his, his job was... Um, uh, looking at advertisements on buses and that that was his business but uh, he uh, we could see that the the, the phone was actually travelling out towards the Nall uh, at a time that was of interest to us because we know Rachel was killed in around the 10 o'clock mark and and uh, we could see then uh, the, the, the phone working its way back and one thing that always stuck with me is five miles from the house on the way back is Richardstown Mast which caught him on the way out as well but um, uh, he texted Rachel uh, saying how are you doing love and all this that and I hope the kids slept well tonight and I'll see you when we get home and all knowing this. that she, and he'd murdered knowing her, that that's it. her and it was also <laughs> a very short time period in which he did yeah, the murder we, wasn't it yeah, he did that yeah because Rachel's movements that morning was that like every like a lot of mothers to get up in the morning, get the kids ready, put them in the car and bring them off. She had two children. She was dropping one at school and wanted to crash. And she left her house at nine o'clock every morning. And uh, we have her at three minutes past nine passing Murphy's Quarry on a camera there. We believe it to be her car. It was an unusual silver scenic. And uh, we have it passing down at three minutes past nine. And we have it going back at around uh, 9.50, uh, around that, uh, around 9.40, sort of around that. We have uh, Joe, a car similar to Joe O'Reilly's, uh, going up towards the house at 9.10 a.m. And it came back at around 9.50. So uh, it's between that time frame that she was oh, killed. Ten like, minutes. You know? God almighty. Yeah, yeah. God so, almighty. Like, Did so you get no, over the court? under her body and that and she was still dressed in the same clothes coat and stuff like that she had been in at the school because like, people had seen her there and said hello to her and you know what I mean like normal you know people dropping off kids or whatever you know and uh, that was it like you know so she was killed very soon after she came into the house she came in and made her way right down to the bedroom and, and boom yeah and, and over it, the yeah. course of the trial do you, do you feel Pat you got to know Rachel? Ah yeah well what you would do in Unfortunately, it's one of the uh, aspects of a senior investigating officer when you're in charge and managing and controlling a, a, a murder investigation. You have to do a background report on the deceased, like, because you have to find out everything about them to show that you see that there's nothing there that's anyway suspicious or anything of that nature. But Rachel, I can say, was an absolute beautiful girl, beautiful woman. She had her heart and mind set on, on the two children and making a home for herself in the country there. And uh, unfortunately, Joe was acting the galoot, like, you know, and uh, 
was having an affair and it wasn't the only affair that he had had and he'd established all of that, like, you know. And he wanted custody of the children. That was, he wanted yeah, that Rachel out of the way. Yeah. yeah, there's a motive for every year. Uh, uh, and uh, he's never admitted guilt, Pat. No, he has never admitted guilt. And I remember speaking to him at a time when I was in his house, uh, you know, uh, before he was uh, charged or anything of that nature. And I, 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 he was sitting down at the table and I sat down beside him and said, Joe, you not think it would be best to tell the truth about this and like do you know what I mean you have your children to think about and do you know what I mean maybe when they grow up like you know they're going to want to know what the truth was and this and they may come to me and ask I said you know and I'm going to tell them the truth but I said that's that it but I said if you tell them the truth now you may hold on to that relationship like you know I know to take a dip but you need to do you know what I mean? You need to just maybe look at the long term or the overall picture, like, you know, and he just turned around to me and he put his face right up to me and he just said, I didn't do it. And that was, he said, and up he got and walked off, like, you know, so when you were yeah. dealing with and someone, what, like, what you know, do you make of him? What do you, what do you make of him as a person? Ah, uh, I, 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 he's, he's the, you know, sort of uh, a man that would be, want to be in control. He wanted to be in control of the children. And he certainly was, uh, uh, that was his motive, like, you know, apart from just wanting to move Nicky in and Rachel out. And that was very evident from the emails that we acquired from his laptops and stuff, like, you know, he was, he, he hated Rachel. Like, you know, I remember looking at one email he was sending to his sister, like, Rachel and me plus marriage equals over, like, you know. And uh, so he was, he was. Why didn't like, he just yeah. get a divorce? God, ah, there was no, there was, there was no, and he, now he got life. He, he was sentenced to life, yeah, but yeah. we know what life in this country means. Is well, there the possibility he will one day walk free? Well, he may well do, but life in this country is 18 to 23 years, and 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 I have mentioned a section in my book about life sentences and that, and and I uh, and I stand by it that if if you commit a murder and you have it pre-planned and you're caught, you should go to prison for life and stay in prison. You should finish out your natural days in prison. Uh, and that's the way I look at it. Um, but he may get out. But one of the aspects of uh, parole is that you have to admit your guilt. Uh, mm. One of the factors, now he's never admitted that, so that's going to be a huge uh, stumbling block for him wanting to get out, like, you know. But mm. uh, And the boys, the children, the children now are young adults, aren't they? They're all, they're both well, they are, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're growing up now to be yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Rose and Jim. Rose and Jim, yeah, yeah, I spoke to them there quite recently, and uh, do you know what I mean? It's as raw with Jim and Rose today as it was on the day. Like you know, it really is when you talk to them, and they know me very well. And do you know what I mean? I, I great time for them. Like they're fa- fabulous people and a fabulous family. Like you know that they, they took on five children, they adopted them all, like, you know, and gave them a, an education and a life, and, like, you know, they were a very happy family, and they went on lots of holidays, and they went, do you know what I mean, they dedicated their life to their children, like, you know, and uh, this to happen then is, is, is just... And they know, lost so, their other daughter, Anne, cancer, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, Anne oh, was, was 21 them. years of age, and, and I knew Anne very well, and we became very friendly, actually, and we were good friends and we used to chat on the phone quite regularly and that, you know, I was at our 30th birthday party and all and she was in great form and that, but um, I think the whole aspect and the stress of of the, the murder and the investigation and the trial, like, you know, it played its part on 
course it is. Of course it is. She was such a lovely girl, a lovely woman, very intelligent, beautiful Well, I listened to the podcast last night and it is it, it, it really is um, top notch. It's excellent. Did you enjoy taking part in the podcast, Pat? Yeah, I did, yeah. I suppose, like, you know, I wrote a book in 2019, The Making of a Detective, and I got through to the last six of the Unpushed Awards for one of the best well done. non-fiction books of 2019. Um, and I was very pleased with that because it was my first uh, throw of the dice of writing a book, let's say, as such. Now, I did have Penguin books were very, very good to me, and uh, I did have a ghostwriter, uh, Rachel Pierce, and... Uh, uh, between us, we were able to put the book together, and I was very happy with it. I'm delighted I did do it, like I really am. And uh, you know, it, it sort of—I um, suppose it, it, it informs people a little bit about murders and investigations and stuff. And the podcast was on to cover the Jacqueline McDonough, uh, Jacqueline McDonough murder uh, and the Nile Dawn murder. They were all in in, in 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 the dark, like you know, and they all had certain aspects to. And it's all covered in my book, but like there's certain aspects to those investigations that were unique in solving them and that, like, you know. But, well, it's a brilliant uh, series. I, it's, it's yeah, brilliant. I have to and say that um, the people, the, the families of people I dealt with over the years when I retired, they wrote to me. And I was overwhelmed and really, uh, you know, chuffed with letters I received from families to say how, you know, they were delighted with the guards and how they conducted their business and particularly myself dealing with them on a one-to-one and keeping them informed. And, uh, and I've always said it's like, you know, the part of any murder investigation, there is a family who are grieving and they cannot be left, you know, to chance. They have to be brought into the investigation as part of the, the, uh, of the trust of an investigation. And, and that's the way I always conducted my business. Well like, done, you know, well done. I and never, then for them to get... Family. Yeah, I never left a family out in the, in the... For them to get some closure at the end as well. Listen, yeah. we leave it there, Pat. It was a real pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you for that. And as I oh. say, well, well done on the book and on yeah. the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Pat. Listen, thanks for talking. Uh, good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is a former... Detective Inspector Pat Marry. The Making of a Detective is out now on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Court Today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. We're late going to Mark Malone, our movie reviewer. Good afternoon, Mark. Hi, and we're not going to have time to play the uh, the trailer. So, just talk to us about Finch. Is the is the first movie you want to talk about? Tom Hanks is Finch. He is indeed, and uh, it's set in a kind of a post-apocalyptic uh, Earth. Basically, what's happened is that solar flares from the sun have destroyed the ozone layer, and so therefore there's nothing to stop uh, the radiation from getting onto Earth. So now Earth is just basically kind of covered in a layer of dust, and. Uh, the population of Earth has been uh, diminished uh, quite a lot as well, although there are pockets who still survive. And one of those people is Tom Hanks, and he kind of lives on his, uh, almost on his own with a dog called a Dog. And um, while he's out foraging every day trying to find food for them both, he realizes that the dog is kind of at home on his own. He was a scientist, so he decides to build a, um, a robot called Jeff to keep an eye on the dog whilst he's out foraging. The reality is, of course, is that even though he doesn't want to have any communication with other human beings, what he basically wants is some kind of um, human kind of um, uh, kind of uh, friendship. And so, therefore, he decides to build this robot 
who decides to call himself Jeff. And um, that's kind of very similar and kind of very human-like. And then the film is basically about their relationship and their burgeoning relationship as they're trying to avoid really bad weather, which is on the way, which looks as though it could kill them all. So he decides instead of going east where people, uh, uh, he knows people exist, he decides to instead to head toward west and uh, head towards San Francisco. So the film is basically about the relationship uh, of this man, this robot, and this dog. And it is kind of formulaic. We've seen it before. And, you know, um, it is, there are a lot of references to other films. For example, uh, one of the robots is called Dewey. And if you've ever seen the film Silent Running with Bruce Stern, it's beautiful have, film, yeah, which you yeah. should see. Yeah. One of the robots there was called Dewey uh, yeah. in that as well. And so, therefore, there are references to kind of other films. Basically, they say, look, Tom Hanks is best on his own. We've seen him do that with Castaway. And it's kind of similar in that kind of way. And he's as good as ever. It's very entertaining. I did love it from start to finish. And I think you will too. I, I love, I'm a big fan of Tom Hanks. So mark that out of 10, Finch. Uh, it's just a little bit too long, I think. So I'll give it a nine. Okay, nine out of ten. And then your second movie is The Marksman. Yeah, this is um, uh, a film which is very similar to kind of uh, Clint Eastwood's kind of most recent output. So it wasn't kind of a, a surprise to me that, in fact, uh, the director of this was the cinematographer for Clint Eastwood uh, throughout a lot of those films. They're very, very similar to what Clint is doing, even Clint's most uh, recent film. Uh, this is Liam Neeson in action mode once again. Uh, and this time he is a farmer, which uh, he lives very close to the Mexican border. Um, he's going to lose his farm uh, because the bank is going to foreclose on that. He has lost his wife. He's basically on his own. And uh, he has no real kind of direction in life until as he's driving along the uh, the border between the USA and um, and Mexico, he sees a woman and a young child get through the fence into America whilst being chased by members of um, a Mexican cartel. He then gets involved in a shootout with them, and then he decides to uh, pledge uh, his life to uh, save this young boy and give him a better life. Once he's been chased, whilst the, the cartel come across the border, and whilst he also has to deal with uh, corrupt uh, American officials and border officials as well. As I say, we've seen all this before. It's mm. all very, very, very similar. He's great. The film is really, really dull, unfortunately. Um, and he's a marksman uh, because he was a former kind of special uh, special uh, forces operative. Although there are times when he doesn't seem to be able to shoot that straight. Um, but it's worth watching for uh, Liam Neeson. Unfortunately, it is formulaic. We've seen this all before. At two hours long, I've found it a difficult watch. But I'd certainly still recommend it if you're a Liam Neeson fan. Yeah, and lots of people absolutely adore Lee- Liam Neeson. So that is the marksman. Mark that out of 10. I'll give it six. Six out of ten. All right, listen, thank you for that and we'll chat to you You're again right. next week. Thanks a million. That is Mark Malone, our movie reviewer with the two movies, The Marksman and the first one is the wonderful Tom Hanks in uh, Finch. Before I go, somebody's been on. We were asking about the Glengariff to Kenmare Road. Denise has been on to say the Glengariff to Kenmare Road is closed until 5pm on December the 14th. Thank you for that. That was Catherine, one of our listeners, wanted to make that journey today and the last time she'd made her journey she got on the road when she discovered that the road was closed. So it is closed until 5pm on uh, December the 5th. Thank you for that. Best of luck to Murnabi ladies. They're playing in the county final in Porky Cueve tonight. There's a text in on uh, uh, that. Now that's where we leave you. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing the programme. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and we will We'll be back with you tomorrow morning at, uh, not tomorrow morning, Monday morning at at 10 o'clock. Somebody's asking about, let me reach over here.
the Richard Chambers book where is it on sale I would say on sale in any good bookshop uh, you certainly can get it it's called A State of Emergency the story of Ireland's Covid cases so I would say all good bookshops that's where I leave you talk to you on Monday at 10 tonight I'm Patricia Messner very good afternoon Cork Today on C103 with John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.